the act of, of farming in this way is fundamentally a political act. Welcome to the Organic Wine Podcast. Roni Selects is a preeminent importer and distributor of natural wines based in Los Angeles, and Roni Ganache is its founder. She was the former wine director for the renowned restaurant Michael's of Santa Monica until she was given the opportunity to help distribute wine for California's grandfather of natural wine, Tony Katuri. From there, a new career was born. Now Roni represents winemakers from France, Germany, Italy, the US, and Georgia, and more. And as you'll hear, she balances her time between navigating the bureaucratic labyrinth required to move wine from one side of the world to the other, and visiting and relishing the beauty of the people and places where the wines are produced. Along the way, she's helping to shape industry awareness about the importance of natural, regenerative, organic wine growing and making practices to the quality and deliciousness of wine as well as the need to eliminate some of the dogma around natural wine righteousness and how natural wine can be a more inclusive segment of the industry. Roni's story highlights her love and appreciation for the amazing wines that are a result of deep passion for farming grapes holistically with care and respect for the earth, a kind of agriculture that is, unfortunately, still somewhat radical and even subversive. Enjoy. Hi, Roni. Thanks Hi. so much for talking with me. Uh, you, you are the founder of Roni Selects, which is an import and distribution company for natural wine, right? That's correct. Okay, so how how does one wake up one day and decide to become a natural wine importer? Well, good like, question. Like, what experience had you had that led you to start Roni? Um, I there was no world in which there was a day that I woke up and said, today's the day I become a natural wine importer. I, it, it, it happened like many things in life, sort of by accident, um, many great things. Um, I was working as a sommelier in a few restaurants in Los Angeles and um, in New York a bit before that. And I threw out my, I became, this is sort of a long story, so I'll, I'll just get into it. I guess that's the point of this long story. Yeah, please. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, feel free to drop names of the restaurants because I know you, you were at some really great restaurants. Too, oh, that's so. wonderful. There, uh, I think that the this it, it was during the time I was at Michael's in Santa Monica, and um, I was um, I had at some point been traveling around Texas, and I stopped. I literally, I know I was in the hill country in Texas, and I I looked up natural wine hill country, and there was one name that popped up, and it was. Um, a winery called La Cruz de Comal and the winemaker's name is Louis Dixon. And I, so I wrote him an email and I was like, where I'm in the area. I'm da, 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 this is who I am. Can I come by and see you? And he didn't respond. So um, a couple of days later, I just showed up at the winery and um, during his, his technically open hours, which are Saturdays. Uh, and he was wonderful. Like the most welcoming he was, he's just like one of those big, big, big characters. Like, you know, he was a criminal defense attorney. He has like the second largest collection of Chicano painting and sculpture, second only to Cheech Marin. And why wow. so, like we felt, we fell in love to say the least. Um, <laughs> so when he came to LA for raw that fall, um, I off, he 
he basically needed some help pouring. So I offered to help him pour. Um, and he was trained by Tony Katori and they've been good friends since the early eighties. Um, trained by, and sort of Tony helped him get started. So he, um, he'd been there consulting on like the vineyard practices from the time that Lewis planted his vines, which at this point is, I'm not going to actually say how long it is because I don't remember the exact number, but it's been a while between 15 and around 15 years, let's say plus or minus. And so um, they're good friends. They're like Tweedledee and Tweedledum. It's like, you know, they just poke at each other and they make jokes. And (laughs) so I spent this whole weekend with these crazy old men and they they would like it if I said, I'm not being ageist. They call themselves that. They, <laughs> okay. I, they celebrate their maturity and their wisdom. Um, and so they, yeah. So Tony at the time didn't have any distribution in California. And, you know, we were sort of putting our heads together. I like, you know, I, I've, I've been working as a song for a number of years and I sort of knew everybody in the field at that point. Um, and I was like, you know, we were trying to find the right fit and he'd been approached by some people, but I was like, no, that doesn't seem right. It, you're, no, his wines are complicated and they need, they need to be sort of um, hand sold um, often. You know, it's, it, at the time, I don't know, this was three years ago or so. It was a different moment in natural wine. Um, and so I was like, okay, look, Tony, I'll, I'll help you sell your wines until you find somebody real, you know? And so I was just <laughs> working at Michael's and I, I had, I was selling wine for other people. I was working for a company called Scuola Divino at the time. And before that, maybe at the same time also for, for another company called Florizon Selections, which is a wonderful portfolio yeah. of mostly French wines. Yeah. Um, and so it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't random. I had those relationships already and I was like, oh, I'll just tack on one. So after Tony, a couple more domestic producers were like, well, we're hearing you're selling Tony's wines and you're doing pretty well. Can you sell my wines too? And I was like, oh, you know what? Why not? You know? And then slowly but surely it became um, more producers, you know, and then I was like spending more time on working with their wines than I was on my day job. And it gets to the point where, you know, I think the point where you have to make a choice, you know, where you're like, okay, am I going to, this is the thing that brings me big joy selling wine for producers, working directly with them. And it can lead to a very interesting and dynamic life of traveling of big relationships. And I was also getting to the point at the same time where I was like losing, losing joy and working service. Um, So it was a good time. So eventually I took a leap and started to pursue it. Um, And since then, um, I, uh, I was working briefly with business partner. It didn't work out. We had a couple of, we built, we, we started to grow a little bit. And then, um, from there now, from there, I sort of ended up with about 25, 30 producers at the beginning of this year and have since started to distribute two other portfolios of sort of comparable size or bigger. So the book has grown. It's not only my imports now, it's also goat boy selections and Owen Cutler selections, um, all under one umbrella. And that's, okay. that's the, the long and short of it. <laughs> so just a quick question. You, you, maybe it won't be a quick question, but you described Tony's wines as complicated. What do you mean? Well, I guess this is, the, the, it's not a quick question, just to warn you in advance. Um, <laughs> the, I hope. <laughs> yeah, there's, okay. So from what I can tell, you know, working in, when I started working as a sum in Los Angeles six years ago or something. It wasn't very long ago. Um, that's when I moved here. I, um, there were a few people selling natural wine, a few portfolios selling natural wine, and a few people 
buying it for restaurants. And it wasn't a thing. It wasn't and like, there were many people who were like, Oh no, 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 I won't drink that. It's weird. Like there was, there were two, there were two shops and um, it was definitely still an anomaly. And I kept, I always made jokes about how like, we don't do this for the money. Ne- there's no money in natural wine. We're never gonna, we're never gonna be mainstream or whatever. Now right. it's a different story. And Tony, you know, Tony's been making wine naturally, like no sulfur and no additions, nothing um, since his, well, he, his first commercial vintage in 1981, he's been making wine since 79. Um, and his wines, I mean, he picks late, he picks later than most other people and uses the, sh- the sugar um, as sort of a natural preservative. And there's nobody else that I know of whose wines sort of age, who, who first of all, who who's wanting to age the way that his do like they're um, within the natural wine sphere. We also just don't have the like luxury of time to see that. So he's one of the few yeah. producers that have been working consistently that way. Um, and like underline that approach as unique, the idea of using sugar to preserve, because I would say 99% of natural wine is the opposite. It's pick real early and use acid to preserve. Exactly. And so that's that's kind of fascinating. I would love to hear more about that. I mean, that's the thing that you should definitely talk to Tony about because he's got a lot to yeah. say. Um, and I'm not a um, I'm not a scientist, and I'm not a winemaker, so I <laughs> I I can't get into the details too too. Yeah. You know, I believe he's. You know, I'm from the. I believe what he tells me. So, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, and it no, works. I mean, so, yeah. Um, the you know he always says the thing that I use as a mantra in my regular life, but in also in, in terms of the way that I perceive of wines, is that basically you can't decide what kind of, what you can't go into a, a vintage or a harvest having the kind, the wines that you want to make in mind. You have to wait till the grapes tell you what they're going to be. So, mm-hmm. you know, which is something, you know, something that many natural winemakers don't do, you know, so they want to make a skin contact. They want to make a skin right. contact gruner, that's at this bricks and this texture and this, this, and then we're going to manipulate it. So it, it becomes in a way a manipulated commodity, you know, yeah. regardless of the desire for it to be natural. It doesn't have right. sulfur. It doesn't have, you know, it doesn't, there was no spraying in the vineyards, but it still like becomes a manipulated commodity in a way that's, that's I, maybe an unpopular perspective, but to get back to your original question, great. <laughs> so his, so the way that, you know, because he picks late, um, they're, you know, they're really high in alcohol. They're like between 14 and 15, five for his wines. And that's like what's listed. You know what I mean? You can't basically go above 15, five and not call it fortified. So it's wow. the wines are high in alcohol, um, which also, you know, is one of the things that um, like, I mean, obviously it's all connected with the sugar and alcohol, but right. he, um, yeah, so they're high in alcohol and they're like pretty dense, like viscous. You can always tell the t- a Katori wine from the texture. Um, in my mind, having, you know, spent a lot of time with them, you know, he's got a, it's the yeast in the winery. It's like the, the barrels that he's using. It's, it's, um, you know, it's all of the stuff that creates a style. Um, so at that time, like three years ago, four years ago, probably there was, I think about four years ago, it was becoming like more and more, um, status quo to, to open a restaurant and have a natural wine list to, um, you know, like night and market song was doing super, super well. Um, at that time or four years ago, about I was when I, I was, I was working with Kismet and we opened at that point and had a totally natural wine list and every, you know, it was like a, it was a big deal in the moment. 
Um, but, um, you know, I think I also just felt protective over this, over this guy who I just met, you know what I mean? One of the reasons why I was like, I just wanted him to, to find the right home, you know? Um, and it was a privilege for me to sell his wines. You know, he's a, he's like the grandfather of natural wine in California. And, yeah, you know, it did me. Yeah. Uh, I, yeah. Was he grumpy? Okay. I mean, <laughs> I, I mean, I have a fondness, so okay. I don't know. Sure. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, he's the best, honestly. He's like, you know, I've, um, it's been such a pleasure to work with him and through him meet so many wonderful people. Like I work with Caleb who works in his winery in Cote de Ca- Cote, uh, Caleb Leisure um, and Cote de Caillou, um, Jacques Machu, who also um, makes wine at the Katori compound. Um, and then, you know, since then he's, you know, he introduced me to uh, some other people and it's all been, it's sort of created this like wonderful family of warm, loving, wonderful winemakers, you know? Mm-hmm. All the winemakers that I work with? No, 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 no. That's what I was going to say. That that sort of the the connections, uh, like Tony, and then yeah. uh, their close connections there. But you are importing and clearly mm-hmm. have expanded beyond this country. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's funny. I just want to jump back and say, I do you know? I, I mean, I just launched a, a an episode a couple of days ago with a guy who's doing something kind of special in Texas and I, I need to put them in touch. Like, is that, is that, uh, is La Cruz de la Camal, de Camal still happening? Yeah, he's there? there. He's, he's doing his thing. Who's the guy in Texas that you just, I'm sorry, I didn't, I'm not, I'm not up to date. So, yeah, no, that's all right. That's all right. Um, Alta Marfa is the project and they're like oh, yeah. in Marfa, Texas. So it's way West Texas underneath New yep. Mexico, and they he, they just planted a vineyard the last couple of years uh, at like fifty four hundred feet, so over a mile high. Um, is it in? in the, is it around Marfa? Or is it further? Is it, there a it's lot of outside of Lubbock. Marfa? Okay, got yeah, it. Yeah, no, interesting. It's, it's it's outside of Marfa in the middle of nowhere. Honestly, like they mm-hmm. they they had to like sleep in tents when they were planting the vineyard. Um, yeah, it's What's, really um, interesting that's project. Yeah. It's crazy yeah. around there. I've spent a lot of time there and it's um it's a very special landscape. I can't yeah. imagine how I, I, beautiful it would I, be I, with vines. I mean that's kinda it did kind of surprise me that you said you were cruising through Texas and looking for natural wine. Not that you went to Texas for natural wine, but what did Texas like was I mean, it was a I was in a relationship with somebody who lived in Marfa actually, so I um would that's spend, hilarious. Okay. Yeah, I was spending a lot of time. You're like the there. one person I, in Marfa. Yeah, I mean but, that's the thing. That we spent funny. I spent ages around there. So it was, um, you know, and and I'd never. I grew up in New York, and then moved to Los Angeles. You know, as an adult, and you know, growing up in New York um, is a is a wonderful thing to do. And it, it's you have you know, it's one of the most incredible places. But it is also a very sort of sheltered existence. You know, you don't know yeah. about America. You know, you yeah. don't know how to. So the first time I actually went to visit. Um, Went to I went from New York um, and flew to, to visit Marfa. I like completely. I learned my lesson so quickly about what America is. Just sort of how to <laughs> the scale of like Texas. You know, I was like, okay, yeah. flying into San Antonio, which is a six-hour drive, and I was like, okay, I'll right. drive it by myself. No big deal. In the ninety-degree <laughs> heat, and you know, I've never been to a place where there are hundreds of miles between gas stations. So it's it was like frightening. Um, yeah, yeah that's I like mean, your I, first, and it's it, like, the worst case scenario. You know, it's like oh, that's no. the thing. My, you know, tire exploded. I had, it was like, you know, Ugh. 
almost ran out of gas. Everything was fine. I made it, but I really was like, oh, I need to, um, I need to wrap my head around. You know, I've traveled a, a lot in the country, but I'd never spent, a, you know, I've never, I'd never really like understood the scale yeah. of the United States of America until that moment when I was standing on the side of the road in the middle of nowhere <laughs> in Texas in 95 degree heat waiting for wow. a, waiting for a tow truck, <laughs> which didn't come. So outside of, no, outside no, no. Of I mean, it was like, I mean, it was I, an exaggeration, like, but okay. yeah, I lived in Colorado for a bit when I was younger. It was, but my first experience in like the set in the, in, in that part of the world, you know? Yeah. Part. Right. And yeah. like even, you know, and from here, basically from, you know, once you get into East Texas, it's, it gets pretty sort of marshy and wet. So basically from, from that, the, the middle of Texas over is all in, until you get here to Los Angeles. It's just all desert yeah. more or less yeah. along that route at least. So it's, you know, I kind of slowly sort of became interested in this landscape, but I think I also, um, yeah, the, de- the desert, the desert speaks to me. Yeah. I, I feel that I've, I spent like a month sleeping around Moab sleeping around. Sounds terrible. <laughs> I spent a camping around yeah. Moab, uh, Utah and, and the, the Canyon lands and sort of the high desert of that mm-hmm. area. And it it's is so beautiful. One of the most beautiful places on earth and so surreal and like just otherworldly really. And then you have nights where you can see more stars than you can see anywhere else in the world. And it's yeah. like literally like the sky f- is falling on you because so many things are shooting around and mm-hmm. it, yeah, it is it's something that everybody should try to get out and experience once or twice. It's really incredible. And you do understand why, like, I mean, you had that experience of like, why if you're a rancher in texas you need to be pretty resourceful because there's nowhere to go for help like it's on you you, yeah you break down you know it's like you have to be a mechanic you have to be a you know farmer you have to be everything uh doctor you know (laughs) totally but that's i mean the thing you know i i don't remember when it was but i listened to um an episode of um levy dalton's podcast um i'll drink to that that with um, an interview with a a winemaker from Piedmont, this woman who had been living in Milan, like very cosmopolitan life, and and then moved to um, um, to Piedmont and started making wine. And she put it in a way that I'll that I always think about. Um, sort of when you live in the city, you're the god of your own domain. You can make all the decisions about what you want. If it's raining, you can go inside. You can find an umbrella, and weather doesn't affect you. You're in charge of your life in a way. And then when you move to the country, you become a winemaker or, you, or a farmer of any kind. You know, you, you really realize how big and like powerful and the universe is and how powerless you are within it. You know, and it, I feel really... like it's an important thing to remember. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like we have a little bit of that in, in Los Angeles because we get earthquakes enough, frequently enough to remind us that, <laughs> that, that right. to some degree we're out of, you know, we don't control the big picture. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that is, that's really well put. I think that's a really good lesson. Um, Absolutely. Well, jumping back to, um, to importing <laughs> you. So you slowly developed and now uh, you, you have a focus on specifically Georgia for a lot. I mean, you're excited about Georgia, at least I don't mm-hmm. know if you're focused entirely on Georgia. Um, but could you talk a little bit about before we get into some of like the, the great stories and, and people that you work with even deeper, let's talk about like 
just the the realities of what's a like a day in the life, a week in the life of you as an importer, um, and how's that different than you know, you know, being a, a national distributor or just local distributor or like what a, talk about some of the bureaucracy you might have to deal with. I know tariffs have been a big deal lately. You know, anything that just to give us a picture of sort of like the nuts and bolts of what goes into. Yeah. I mean, it's very boring. That part is very boring. So I'm not going to go into it. Because <laughs> you're dealing detail. with like, see. Yeah. I mean, it's all paperwork. Like that, right? It's, you know, I was on the phone with the FDA for an hour this morning to get an answer, to get basically to, for, to have them tell me that they can't give me the answer I need because it's classified. You know, it's just like a lot of paper pushers <laughs> yeah. all over yeah. every different, you know, and no matter, I think this is another thing. I, with Georgia specifically, every time I, import every time i have a, a shipment from georgia I, it becomes the georgian crisis and that's how i riff in my in my house with my partner and she's like i can't hear about another georgian crisis i can't this is too you know there's always something that goes wrong um whether it's you know the way the pellets are packed or how long it takes or you know it's um it's just a complicated there are many people involved and many hands that everything goes through whether it's refrigerated or not i mean it's all like boring logistics you know that's you just have to well, sort of that journey from you know this wonderful producer in the outback of georgia <laughs> to los angeles you know the steps along the way are boring but I guess I guess what is exciting to me to highlight is the fact that you know the decisions that you make and the decisions that and you're making those because of the influence of the consumer and and the decisions that we make that we consumers make like really involve this global you know infrastructure of people's lives and and well-beings and their livelihoods you know just to get whatever a $20 bottle of what of wherever $30 bottle of something tasty from the dinner mm-hmm. table is this is this a, a interconnected web of you know interdependence among humans that is I think that's what's interesting about For it sure. and I guess you know I don't know like that tell I mean no I what like some of the what is the journey of the bottle so you like you have a importer who wants to to I mean you have a producer Los Angeles mm-hmm. get here Good question. It really depends. There are a couple of things that it depends on. There are some companies, one of the ones that I work with, that basically um, it they they consolidate containers for a bunch of different importers. But let's say in um, there's a the details of what happens. Basically, there's a producer in France, for example, who makes some wine, and then it has to get picked up on a truck and taken to the port of wherever the closest port is in France. Um, and then it's these pallets are which were packed at the winery are consolidated onto containers, um, big shipping containers that are refrigerated. And then those go on big boats and they either, um, if they're going to New York, they go directly across the Atlantic. And if they're going to the West coast, they have to go around Panama and come back up. So that's why it usually takes another, an extra month more or less to get wine to California than it does to New York or anywhere else on the East coast. And then from there, it reaches the port of Oakland, um, most often, or I've, I've never had anything go into Long Beach, but I assume that it can. Um, and then it's picked up on another truck and moved to the warehouse, inbounded into the warehouse. And then it's eventually, usually about two and a half to three months later, available to be shipped to accounts all over California. Customs exactly. and do. Yeah. So then it's also, yeah, well, then it has to, a, it gets sort of shaken around again. So, again. yeah. Okay. Um, um, 
And then, yeah, finally, from the warehouse, you know, I have a little ordering system and I put in an order and I say, you know, send three cases of this to this account and then it gets there. That's the end. That's the end of the cycle. And are you right? Mm-hmm. Sort of like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, just no, no, think no. About yeah. it. <laughs> it's, I mean, you know, the, the joy of this work is, you know, luckily this is a thing that I am capable of doing. Uh, it's like within, you know, it's like within the skill set that I've developed over time. But it's also, you know, this isn't where the, the joy is, you know, the logistics of, right. of, of, sure. um, of getting wine from A to B. I mean, yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, the fun part is going to those places and finding the wines and finding right. the people and developing the relationships. You know, so ask you yeah. about significantly. Yeah, it's a real, it's a real pain in the butt to say the least. It's just a lot of cash. Yeah. You know, it's like it's a lot of money that you're giving to no one. Right. And it feels like a real waste. Right. You know, for a thing that like it's about the, the one that's in place right now is 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 um is about it's like about like to it's about aircrafts and um it's very stupid i mean the whole thing has nothing to do with uh, yeah. the tariffs that we're dealing with, or, with wine. apparently yeah. there was something now where the eu is allowed to impose restrictions on boeing planes so it's like punishing america back for these tariffs so hopefully right. it will influence yeah. them going forward. Anyway, the point is it's very stupid. I will also say that the, another thing that I've been dealing with or trying to figure out is, you know, the whole shipping process. There are a lot of hands touching the wines at different points. And, like, it's a huge carbon emission. Like, there's just, like, so much energy that's eaten during this time, like the trucking, the shipping. Right, that's what, yeah. So I'm, like, trying to – basically, I'm trying to – one company that I work with has – records data about carbon emissions that seems to maybe not be accurate but um i'm trying to work with it trying to find basically a way of calculating the total emissions um from point of pickup to um like final destination during the time that i basically own the wine at Roni selects owns the wine um right and you know and then eventually once we can calculate it we're gonna um offset whatever we or include the offsets the the cost of working with the company hopefully that's doing work locally um right in terms of just like offset projects um but it's group is yeah that kind of thing i mean they're the whole um you know i was talking somebody the other day mentioned that like glass the the process of using new glass every time is like a huge emission for wine for for winemakers so even if we're working you know even if we're practicing regenerative regenerative farming um, there are always other things to take into account. It's not just what's happening in the, right. in the soil, you know? And I mean, I know that I, I just found out, like I was looking at a bottle company um, for our wines uh, in New York and I was like, oh, great. You know, it's like American made. Da, da, da. And then because there's a, a, a big supplier for a lot of wines, uh, a, a lot of wine bottles is in China. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I'd considered that one. It was a little bit cheaper, but I was like, oh, you know, it's American made. It's like, it doesn't have to cross an ocean. Well, then it turns out like driving a truck across America uses more emissions than a boat from China. Um, so it's like, it's always sort of surprising as well, the kind of where where the biggest impact is and where, you know, you're doing right. good, you might much right. good. And you yeah, I was always thinking like the wine, the winemakers are like a negative emission. You know what I mean? So I don't have to take that into consideration, but now like right. yeah. someone bringing to, you know, I mean the idea of, yeah, of course the glass, the capsules, the corks, it's not, you know, no matter how much good work you do, yeah. there was another 
set of and do you like you know stuff on Instagram? I mean, not necessarily. Or do you encourage are you having of them? I'm starting to have conversations. I mean, it's a lot about you know. There's, I think a lot of the people that I work with are just trying to like figure out their marketing in total. Yeah. There are a couple of people who are um, who are thinking sort of holistically about emissions, and you know, it's like a cost prohibitive, obviously, to like you know the whole process of calculating. I've talked to a couple of different companies that that calculate emissions and it's just like ex- extravagantly expensive, you know, to, to just, to have them do the work that I can't figure out how to do. Cause I'm not a professional um, calculator of carbon emissions, you know? So it's oh, no, no, go ahead, go ahead. in a bulk in the U S uh, I mean, you know, they, you know, who, yeah. people like yellowtail do that. You know what I mean? It's like, sure. It yeah. becomes, you know, it's especially because most of the time the wines are aging in bottle for quite a long time. You know, it's like, uh, it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you know, you know the drill. It's like it's a whole, it's different, a whole different thing. thing. Of course, yeah. yeah. There are a couple of producers I work with that, that keg their wines now, um, and yeah. that's great. Um, unfortunately, when COVID started, it became sort of impossible to sell wine in kegs because there right. are no wine bars. Yeah, you know. It's, so, right. um, you know, it's it's we can in a vacuum. There are ways in which we can all make small changes, but obviously like the complexity of marketing, the complexity of like living through a global pandemic and all make any decision arbitrary in a way, at least that's anyway. Causing us to reevaluate a lot of things, but then it's also just put a lot of things on hold. We can't reevaluate. We just sort of have to, we know that things will eventually be different again right? in a different way. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, so all of this talk kind of led to a, like a hard question I wanted to ask you, which is, is there something inherently paradoxical or contradictory about importing natural wine, given these kind of considerations? I mean, if you're only... And the, and the values from which they're produced, you know, the sort of community and local, you know, natural vibe from just that specific place. And then... You know, I mean, if you're only thinking about like the ecological impact um then yes for sure i mean i'm i'm not going to tell you that that the majority of people working in any that everybody's a hypocrite obviously yeah we live in this is 2020 we know we 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 can find hypocrisy around every corner and yeah. in every mirror you know but it's um yeah, it's my head is raised. Yeah. 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 but the thing that i will say is that the the experience of you know i i think obviously because i have like personal relationships with the people that i'm importing um like it give it makes me feel like i'm in communication with them when i drink their wines here you know and even if i can't like be with them which i would love to because i'm you know they're like i love them you know this is a problem with doing business with people that you love you end up loving you know it's like it makes it difficult but you know it's it is it feels like um it feels like you're in you know the back of someone's winery in georgia or like on some beautiful field in the loire or you know, and that's, I think the thing about trying to figure out the offsets is to sort of, you know, a certain level of hypocrisy is inevitable, but to minimize the effect of it, you know, as much as possible and sort of, yeah. know, I mean, what can we do? I think I can help answer that question by saying, yeah, like you're right. I mean, if you're looking purely at the ecological stuff, sure, there's, pro- it's problematic, but like you've already said, there's ways to offset that, those problems um in very realistic ways like very important ways too that that you know like basically buy that carbon back uh from the atmosphere Mm -hmm. and put it back where it should be 
Um, and those are great options. I think those are really good options. I, I, I just noticed because I was shipping some wine that UPS now has, like you just tick a box mm-hmm. and add like pennies on the dollar to do a zero carbon delivery. Like they're now integrating that into the options. For sure. um, and many companies are. Fabulous. It is. It yeah. is, you know, and carbon offsets aren't like the be all end all. You know what I mean? They're still like, they're right. all, they're, I mean, it's right. always better to, to assume you know, to assume that anything that you calculate is like, it's going to be like at least 12% or 20% more than that. You know what I mean? From the things that you're not into. Right. You know, it's like the, the amount of plastic right. that you're using when you're like wrapping a pallet, you know, it's like that breaks my heart every time I see. But um, there are so many, there's so much potential for, for development within this industry. And I just don't think there's been like huge innovation in a way that's, you know, my, my sister actually, this is all I have a very influential older sister who this is her job she works basically in um she was working in like sustainable um um like impact investment and now she works um on like the product end of of things um in terms of uh sustainability so she's kind of like an expert within her field and and keeps sending me new products and last week she sent me a thing about like a like a reusable shipper um for a case of wine so I was like, how can I, you know, thinking about how I can integrate that into, you know, if I do direct to consumer, it's, it's too yeah, expensive, sort of like old... you know, to do on a large scale, right. but like, it could be like a luxury option. So like, so if somebody wants to like pay the, like, for return, shipping, like the milkman option, for sure, which is like, okay, so we can only, this is, and becomes problematic again. So you can only, you can only participate in this like offset economy in this like economy of righteousness. If you have the funds to do it if you basically have money right, yeah. and the money it's like where you get that did you exploit somebody i don't know <laughs> so, <laughs> you know you know what the, like we don't probably have the answers today but i think i mean part of what i really believe in doing is bringing them up honestly mm-hmm. because we're never going to get to those answers unless we do like if we try to if we try to be hypocritical and claim that we're you know green greenwash things and claim that everything's wonderful with organic or with natural or whatever then you you there are you ignore the real problems and never solve them and and I think yeah these are you bring up some really good stuff that immediately when I hear you talk about this stuff like I just want to start tangenting and brainstorming ways that we can like come up with alternative packaging or new ways of pallet shipping and you know everything that you said just to me is like oh what could we do with that what could we do yeah. with that so I think that's very important and like hearing hearing that is I think a good for sure um, I mean there's so much work to be you know. I will just bring it up just because, um, you know, it's a, there, there's so much about the natural wine industry in addition to this, which is, you know, alienating to like people of color, to women, to like anybody who's queer or, or like within the LGBT spectrum. You know, it's like there's a world in which natural wine is 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 successful and like there are ways in which it's not. And, you know, it's been really moving over the past six months or so to see um to see sort of the the community mobilize around like activism around the Black Lives Matter movement and like education for all the like BIPOC industry members. And it's been like a totally new, you know, you know, we've all been like living in this world where we, we think we, because we don't use sulfur, because we farm organically, that we are like, we are correct. And the other is not, you know? Right. And I mean, I, I remember a couple of years ago, I was like facilitating a panel and I was like, asking some winemakers whether they thought their work was fundamentally political. And they, they were like, no, 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 never, never, never. We don't, we're just making wine, you know, but the act of oh, doing this, you know, I mean, and, you know, and they're wonderful yeah. friends and wonderful winemakers, 
you know, I think that the the act of of farming in this way is fundamentally a political act. You know, it's like when you're taking a stand against against like big agriculture and like when you're yeah. not using those products, when you're when you're basically like yeah. when you're farming, you know, when you're preserving methane or you know what I mean? Like everything that they're doing is is um yeah like it's, it's active create, yeah allowing for a healthy soil microbiology so that you can sequester exactly. carbon and greenhouse gases and and not have pollutive runoff and not be spraying stuff and hurting not just ecology but i mean you know like the it is too common for people to die young of cancer in wine for country sure. um I'm, you know, and that's, there's a reason. And labor that. practices, obviously, it's like, that's another huge thing. The, yeah. the, you know, the Cane winery that was just halfway burnt down this week. Yeah. There, I went yeah. to visit them years ago, I don't remember, four years ago, five years ago. And, um, and the, they're like half the, the people who are responsible for like the vineyard management, like are the same families that have been working there for 20 years. Some of them live on the property oh, wow. and like are all paid, yeah. like paid like, well and like with love you know and i was just like it's yeah. and now two of the houses burned down and the winery is raising money to um and you know these families lost everything so it's like the the, the winery is like people have been asking what you can do to help the first thing you can do is like do, donate to this gofundme for the two families that lost their homes you know it's like thinking about you know and like Kane is a winery for example you know they're in napa they're at the top of string mountain they're making napa wine but to me like if they're not you know, and like maybe they use some sulfur, but their their farming is immaculate, and they, they yeah organic, yeah, organic is not biodynamic yep. practices, yeah, and right. like yep. they're um it's all indigenous yeast, and like you know that's I guess the stylistic thing going back to Tony's wines is that like you know fitting everything into a mold of style um within the natural wine world is complicated. Yeah, I've definitely had these conversations on this podcast before about just how you know it. it it's interesting to me how natural, if you just look at natural values, you can make wines like Tony makes where it's a big alcoholic. You could even, you know, you know, whatever, like it's, it doesn't have to be a certain style. And yet it seems like that style is actually uh, looked down upon, you know, so, you know, if it's not acid driven, high alcohol, it, that doesn't necessarily mean it's not natural. It doesn't mean you added sulfur. It doesn't mean you did any, you know, did bad farming. It just is when you picked, you know, <laughs> it's just a, that's just a stylistic choice, but it seems like there's a, a stylistic mandate in addition to the philosophical mandates of, of natural wine, which I think is unfortunate because I think, you know, I think it should be a little more encompassing. I think if you, especially to broaden its reach, because I think the the values of it are so, good and worth spreading that it would make sense to make natural wines that are also sort of broadly palatable to people who are you know haven't made that transition to you know an orange wine or a, a super low alcohol acid driven you know cab uh they still want their big fruity cab well there's um, you can make sure that. absolutely i mean i think you know uh, two things I'll say about that is that I do think that's it's because the consumers are relatively new to the field. You know what I mean? Like there's a difference between the way the consumer is perceiving of natural wine at this point and way, the way that the, the natural wine professional is perceiving of it at this point, you know, like uh -huh. there's a, yeah. there's a world in which yeah. this is 
going to change, you know, and like there's the, this is the beginning. We're at the beginning of this thing. Everyone's excited about it. They want orange wines and chilled reds and they want to drink light, easy right, things. Right. It's also, you know, but, you know, I'm thinking about like at Psychic Wines, for example, which is a huge, you know, like a, a beacon of, of natural wine um, in Los Angeles, like they, they love ripeness in a wine. They love a little bit of VA. Mm-hmm. They love a big red, you know, in a way that I've yeah. like been, you know, consistently surprised and moved by. Um, but <laughs> yeah, and yeah. they're there to sell them to people like by hand and like they're there to talk about it and celebrate it. You know, they, they're huge supporters of Tony's and, and for example, and like, um, it's a different thing. I mean, but I will say that, you know, when I was working as a, like m- making wine lists and stuff, it, you know, there's a, you know, especially at Michael's, like I was, Michael's is a super traditional old school. It's been open for it. We, they celebrated their 40th anniversary um, right after I left. And so oh, their wow. regulars there have been, and it's always had like a phenomenal wine program. There were phases of ups and downs, but it's, it's always been sort of a place where people go for like, like, you know, to, to have that experience. And yet I managed to, you know, it's like, you you have to be a little subversive, you know, you get, you get, you get people to drink Napa cabs that are made, that are farmed organically, that are, are, you know, that are made with, without, um, additional yeast, et cetera. Um, but it just has to, you know, you just have to do more research. You have to taste more wine and like dig, dig for the things that, you know, it's not, it's not always easy to fill that gap, but there's always something there, you know? I mean, I, well, Kane is always somebody I relied on, you know, like they've yeah, been, yeah, I just maybe. moved my staff <laughs> yesterday from, from a place that I didn't feel as great about it, uh, but you know, they're, they're getting ready, they're getting ready for the future, but, um, uh, Matthias and yeah, uh, he's wonderful. Matthias, no, sorry, no, um, he's, he, yeah, he's a wonderful farmer and makes delicious wines. Um, Raffanelli is another one. You know, and, you know, and sometimes it's like, it doesn't always have to be, I'm also, you know, I'm every once in a while, I mean, obviously this is a podcast, so it's not private, but I was going to say off the record, (laughs) you know, there are some exceptions that I'll always make, you know, there's a winery that's called Green and Red in Napa. And, um, they, I, you know, the winemaker just passed away like two years ago or a year ago. So I don't know what's going on with the winery now, but they, um, They've been making um, the Chez Panisse like house wine since Chez Panisse opened, you know, and like they're in the same sort of generation and sort of ideological sect as Alice Waters, as Michael from Michael McCarty. Like, you know, they're all like that early California cuisine moment. Um, Yeah. So representing their wines and like was something that sort of makes sense, even ideologically, even if they're not like, even if they do use... um, they they inoculate or if they you know i think like the way that i approach wine i baseline have things that i believe in you know and there yeah. but just like for every rule with a wine region there are exceptions you know you have to leave room for exceptions like there's no room for dogma you know yeah it's boring i'm like i'm t- there's you know life isn't long enough for dogma i feel like that's true well you're um you're that that is always refreshing in the natural wine world because i feel i feel like it is it tends towards dogma um so that's i think important i love <laughs> i love that i will um, say though that i the, i mean like I'm supp- go ahead you know is almost 
to just go back and defend the natural wine world. I mean, the reason there's dogma is because the alternative is because it's still a, it's still a fight. You know, one of the things that is very annoying about, about importing wine is yeah. that you have to make, you, you know, and also making wine, you have to get those labels approved and everything. And if you write organic or like natural, or if you write anything about your, if you try to put a certification on the bottle, then you have to go through like many, many, many extra steps to get that label approved. Whereas like if it's a conventional yeah. wine with like no certification, no, you know, no ethics, I'll say, then it's the easiest to get approved. Like, so that the status quo is still favored, you know? Yeah. I, I guess. And yeah, to be honest about my own bent, it's, I am pretty dogmatic about the viticulture, right. like winemaking. I'm as lenient as, you know, I'll, I'll, you can add make a purple i'm fine with that if you grew it organically i'll still taste it <laughs> you know like i'm okay with what? that but not my preference you know to add make a purple but i you know like it's i don't think i can like the only exception i made to that it's funny we i had some um really a really nice person who came over to pick up some wine and brought a gift bottle of wine and they were like do you drink stuff that's not organic i was like if it's a gift i of course i would mm -hmm. <laughs> like i'm never gonna turn down that is very sweet and you know the thought is much more important than any negative effect of, course, of, yeah. of, of that but um but yeah if i'm buying something i just cannot bring myself to pay for something where glyphosate was used for example yeah. i just won't i just it. don't understand why you would, um, like i think i also have a block in my head where i'm like why would they do like but you know, I mean, now, now that it's really inexcusable, there's so much, so much. Well, it's also, crazy. you know, I mean, there are circumstances that are sort of beyond our control. Like I will say, for example, this is an extreme example. I was in, in the West bank working on another project with a winery out there and they couldn't pick when they wanted to pick because they couldn't get anybody to pick the grapes. Cause they, there was basically like, so many different reasons because like of like religious oh, factors yeah. because of the occupation because of this and that you know and basically so yeah. they had to pick late and they they added acid and i was like you know what i get that you know like yeah you, yeah no i that's like a force I, majeure I mean, thing where you like a little bit have to and this is you know i i don't want this to be an advertisement for what i'm doing but it is like the reason we're doing it is because i really believe like let's let's get a like it's we wouldn't need the labels if we actually listed ingredients like you know if you if you can't say natural but all you added was tartaric and i can read that in your ingredients label then i'm cool with that like i know that there are many reasons especially in california where it's like if you want ripe grapes and you're in the central valley or the foothills you might lose some acid right. you know like it's just it's really hard. I mean, to find balance in California is a real, like you either have to be able to pick multiple times. So you're picking really acidic grapes and then riper grapes to get, you know, the ripeness you need or, and, and a lot of people don't have that luxury, you know, and there's all kinds of logistical reasons that come into play, you know, even religious reasons here. Like we harvest from a, a, a place that's owned by a Jewish person. And, you know, if we wanted to pick on a Saturday and it was a heat wave that weekend and we had to wait and something else was scheduled on Monday, we might wait till Tuesday or Wednesday to get our grapes. Right. And that's just a reality. Yeah. Like, and then, you know, the heat would have come and we would have, and things would have. No, I mean, but, that's reasonable. Yeah. I, you know, it's like for, 
at the same time, it's like, why then, then, you know, it's a different conversation. Like it's not even within the realm of like, you know, uh, that's the problem. I guess the ideological sort of like, why talk about natural wine then if there are so many other factors, like, can you, you know, for example, like it's hard to make, like even in parts of France, like in the Languedoc and Roussillon, it's easiest there because of the climate to make natural wine than other yeah. easier than other parts of France, you know, where they deal with more mildew or they deal with like, you know, more right. hail or frost or whatever, you know? So like, why doesn't everyone just make wine in the Languedoc and why do they try to do it in Alsace or whatever, or in like, um, or in, <laughs> right. you know, in the Loire, which is like, you know, how many vintages in a row do we hear of half of, or 90% of someone's production being lost to, to hail or frost? It's like, you know, yeah. also with climate change, everything's going to change at the end of the day, you know, you make like, yes it's difficult to get to that acid that you want but like then that wine isn't isn't going to have that acid you know what i mean like at the end of the day you're telling the story of a place and a time and like that's not what if you if you do add that acid then that's not the story anymore you know what i mean so it's it's like it's a marketing thing like yeah you have to make your money back so can you sell that wine without that acid or do you do something else you know do you like like blend it with some white grapes or like do you you know not make you know do you just like get creative you know right right yeah that's a i mean it's the question like what if 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 you're if you're trying to reflect place what happens when your place tastes like shit you know? yeah i mean then there's nothing that then year. you you know the great thing about distillation is that there's always um there's, there's you, you can always make right. like in in georgia they call them um, they use the great mess and they make something called cha-cha which means skins basically and it's like burning fire water a real you know and everyone everywhere you go you have to drink their cha-cha it's the best one of course so all day every day in georgia you end up drinking little shots of like fi- is it mellowed in anything or no or flavored with anything? oh no it's just, just it's just like up. it's just like grappa basically but like just, 50 it's like, what is it oof. 50 proof or something 48 you know Oh like completely God. just like yeah. fire water. Anyway, there's a whole methodology for drinking it so that you don't scream afterwards, but it's, a, <laughs> you know, there's always, there's always like somewhere to put the grapes. <laughs> yeah. But it doesn't work out. Yeah. Well, right now, hand sanitizer, apparently yeah. it's another big one. <laughs> well, on a brighter mm-hmm. note, <laughs> I love uh, the motto that you have on the website for Roni Selects, natural wine by heroes for heroes. And I wanted you to just talk about why, why that, like why, I mean, first of all, why did you fall in love with natural wine? And then what does that motto mean to you? And, and, and why are these people heroic? And then if you're on a roll, I'd love to hear stories about some of them, you know, some of the people you work <laughs> with and some of the amazing things that they're doing. And I mean, cause you did say, you know, like when you're drinking their wine, it's like you're having, you're in conversation with them. Like you, and, and I think wine, that's one of the great things about mm-hmm. wine, especially when it's made beautifully like that. And um, I, I'm guessing that's part of what draws you and drew you to natural wine, but, but, you know, go on. I would love to hear more about that motto and the people that make it up. Um. Well, you know, it's a funny thing. I like wrote that um, very quickly and I like didn't think about it. And then I've been asked about it many times and, um, I guess it does, it does resonate, you know, um, you, you put less thought into it than I'm asking you to put. Yeah. Into it I, but I've had to think about it since. So, so it's a, don't worry. Um, so, you know, 
So the first time, you know, I was living in New York before I moved to Los Angeles. Um, and I was, you know, and this is the time when like all of my friends were working at like Marlowe and Sons and Diner and all of those places. And I was like starting to drink these wines um, and starting to sort of like get interested in them and, and become a you know, I, and I got, a, I, I started working at a restaurant um, called the musket room and it's still open and it's in, um, it's in Alita in New York and it's, it's wonderful. There was a chef from New Zealand and the, the wine list was run by, or at least consulted on um, by the, at the time, the only master song from New Zealand. So he was bringing in all these winemakers from all over, from all over New Zealand to just come in huge education um, about New Zealand wines and just generally about um, mm. like, it was just like a deep dive. And there was a woman who, um, this is just like a very distinct experience. So I'm telling you this whole backstory. So the, um, this woman named Erin Scala, who's a Sam, she's actually on that podcast with Levy Dalton. She, she, um, um, yeah, yeah. That's, that's why. Her yeah. Name so familiar, she's, right. um, she's like a, a wonderful, she's like the silent partner. Exactly. Yeah. Right? She does a lot of the like history stuff and she's a wonderful educator. Um, and is now working in Virginia doing stuff with Virginia wine. Um, anyway, the point is that at some point I like won some sort of prize or something. I sold this amount of wine or like, I like got the best score on a quiz or something. I don't remember what it was. Anyway, I like earned myself a bottle of wine, whatever wine from the list I chose. And I chose a bottle, um, from a winery called Clofantine and in Fougere in France. And I remember so clearly she said, okay, when you open, this is, this is what's called a natural wine. When you open this, it's there might be some trapped carbonation, so you should decant it or like shake it around at least. And I remember opening it and drinking it and being like, whoa, <laughs> look at this trapped carbonation. You know, like this totally, you know, this was a couple of, I, I remember this is the first time I was just like, oh, this is different from everything else, you know? Mm. And then, you know, and, but I was, you know, at the time, like sort of exploring different regions and everything. But um, in terms of ideology, like, you know, I grew up, I was raised by like, um, like, ideologue farmers basically on my mom's side they're all um my 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 parents are from israel and my my mom grew up in a kibbutz which is like an an agricultural um like commune more or less now they're all privatized and it's a totally different thing but my grandfather basically when i was growing up he would write us letters every week and it was just all about the weather and what was happening with the fields and i was always like this is so boring like this is why you know why don't you talk about like anything fun like family gossip or whatever but you know, meanwhile, he was subliminally imprinting exactly. you, and and it's deep in your blood. Deep in my blood <laughs> Here to just like, talk about soil. <laughs> you know what I mean? All day, every day. <laughs> and you know, and I, um, so you know, and he's not. He was never. It, it was like a big. You know, it was big. There was no talk about like um, organic farming or anything on within that realm. Right. It was um, anyway. But so when I started, you know, it was just constantly thinking about all sorts of issues around agriculture and like larger scale and labor and things like that. They're all big lefty activists. And so I, you know, I come from a background of people who are thinking about the holistic, I guess. And, you know, when I started working with wine, I was like, this is the only thing that makes sense, you know, is I, it does for me personally, it didn't make sense to like support wineries that weren't thinking the same way that I do, you know? And, you know, it's like, so it just became sort of, it was an easy it was. It wasn't a. It wasn't a sort of active choice. It was just like this is the thing that I do. You know what I mean? You know, it helped also yeah. that when I came to Los Angeles, my first job was working at Domain LA, so I got like a good. I got a good 
initial education oh, into great. the sort yeah. of um, natural wine scene in Los Angeles. And I was like, this is a, these are people, this is a place I want to like support and be a part of, you know? Oh. And then your second question is about, I mean, you know, the, there's this, the idea of heroic agriculture is something that I find very romantic. You know what I mean? People talk about it in terms of, or viticulture, her, heroic viticulture. And in like when you farm in a crazy place, that's very steep or just like all these things that people have to do to make grapes beautiful, you know? Yeah. And it's like, um, you know, I bring it full circle back to those elements that are out of our control as exactly. well. Like, I mean, when, you know, when you see what farmers who have the limited tools that you have, if you're trying to be very natural and organic, it's like, you, you know, you do you, and even if not, like, I mean, a lot of people, you know, hail affects everybody, yeah. regardless of what you're spraying on your vineyard. And, and, you know, it's, yeah. 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 It's crazy. I mean, you know, and in that sense, it's like, there's always, obviously with the limited tools, you know, you talk to a biodynamic farmer and they have an answer for everything. You know, there's like people who yeah. live within yeah, this realm of, of, of yeah. the ethereal. I, I use that. I, that's right. And I, and I should say like limited tools, I should use that with quotations because I think that's a little bit of like an anti-organic, anti, you know, biodynamic refrain that you hear a lot. And it's, I don't think it's that true. I mean, I think there's, they're just different tools and maybe harder tools, more, more hands-on tools. And in the end, you know, Um, I mean, like the, also not only is it an ideological thing, I also do believe that like you can, taste the difference between a living wine like a living object and a dead object you know and like there's 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 energy and not to whatever i'm gonna go there i mean i work with a bunch of people who like literally plan everything by the moon phases so no matter what i say it's less extreme than the world that they live in so (laughs) i i do think that there is a transfer of energy in a way between you know when you when somebody and it's the same thing. It's like, you know, I, I come from an art background also. And it's like when someone, when you can feel the physical transfer of energy into an object, it like generates meaning, you know, and yeah. that's, you know, and it might be, and it might be unconscious or it might be, you know, it might be like not physical. It something's sort of like otherworldly, but, you know, I do think that it exists or, you know, even if it doesn't exist, I have the fantasy of it existing. So it exists, you know? So like, that's (laughs) the way brains work. So like, I, you know, my brain has made this thing for me, this like fantasy for me. So I'm going to indulge in it because it feels good, you know? And yeah, you know, in terms of like the heroic thing, yeah, it is like everybody who, I do believe that like everybody who like farms a plot of land is doing something like pretty magical. You know what I mean? It's like, no matter what, they're difficult, you know? And then in terms of the consumer, like, you know, you're buying into this thing. So you're, you know, making it possible for those people to continue their work. You know, the reason I do what I do is to help the people that I'm working with, the producers that I'm working with, keep doing what they're doing, you know? Yeah. Um, it loud. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I think that is a really, that's a really important part and something that I always try to emphasize is just like the, the power of the consumer to make these beautiful things happen just by these, the choice that you go in you're like, Oh, I'll have this with dinner. Tonight. Right. You know, but that, like, I guess, you know, going back to what I was saying about the, the whole supply chain that, that made that possible for you to make that choice. And then the people, you know, the, the, the beautiful thing that's happening at the other end of that chain that created that thing that you're able to drink. Mm-hmm. It's uh yeah, that's all part that you're, you're directly connected that. 
it's a real that yeah and it becomes you know it's like a I feel now I just started working with a go boy um which is wonderful and there's so many producers in it who I've sort of I was, I was working with their wines from you know when I could as soon as I could choose what wines went somewhere I started selling these these wines you know and it's, so it's like a huge honor for me to be able to, to to work with a lot of these you know and the winemakers that I that I import directly it's, you know they're they I do look up to them as as like you know their their knowledge their understanding of of or you know they're they're very good at what they do you know so, um I guess which is a good transition to some of the people that I work with I was just yeah. gonna say yeah go for it I mean <laughs> yeah I'd love to hear about you know some of these the some of the craziest things that some of the craziest vineyards or you know projects or whatever is happening or beautiful or how, yeah. you know whatever sticks there's, out there's um I mean I'll Every, you know, it's like I could talk about a lot of things like Columbia, who's in Tuscany. They, I've never seen such healthy soil. It's, it's unbelievable. They, I, you know, I was, it's like super deep red clay with fossils, like huge, you know, all of that area many, many millions of years ago was ocean floor. And, you know, there are these huge like fossilized seashells that are like the size of, you know, two, you have to hold them with two hands that come out of the soil, wow. you know, and, and once they're farming biodynamically, like extra, extra, extra. Um, every time I talk to them, they talk, tell me something about the moon, which is always elegant and, you know, the warmest, most wonderful uh. people. And they have their vineyard on one side of um, one side of this sort of hill. And on the other side, they have two horses, two like gorgeous old, um, like sort of sturdy workhorses that balance the energy f- from the vines. Oh, wow. So it's like all sort of the whole property is like a living ecosystem that's like balanced energetically as well. One cool thing. I mean, I work with a woman in Georgia. What What are they making before oh, you move on from them? What kind of wine are they they're making? making? I mean, they have um, a couple of different cuvées. They make, um, they're like Rosso Toscana is like um, Sangiovese and a couple of different grapes. And they have like many different okay, vintages. So- and then they make a skin contact Trebbiano, Sia blend, and some sparkling wine, some rosé. Nice. So sort of classic for that area, but in, in their own yeah, style. Yeah, and, the, you know, definitely, yeah, they're very, very elegant wines. And they, um, every vintage, you know, of the same cuvee, my first, like, shipment from them was, like, four different vintages of the same cuvee. And they were, like, remarkably different and very, like, well-priced. And, oh, wow. You know, and they all go through different phases. So it's, like, nice to watch them, you know, open a bottle of the vintage that you liked the least or whatever. And, you know, it's changed into this like completely other thing you know so it's they're um they're very very they're in motion um yeah this one of the people i work with in georgia um her name is tamuna she works under the label corta Vebis marani um and now she's starting her own label tamuna's wine and she's making she's doing something that like nobody else in georgia is doing which is um she planted this vineyard that's like a little plot like maybe a hectare or something that's 35 different grape varieties 34 indigenous Georgians and one um, like Muscat from the Ukraine um, and blends that entire plot into one wine. It's just called 35 grapes. And it's like a neon pink color. Like every year it's a little bit different, but it's honestly one of the, my favorite wines that I work with altogether. It's like, I, I never, there's not a lot of it. And this year we got all of it and it's like not very much, you know? And so it's, it's definitely, um, a special it's just like a special object that like is more complex mm. than it looks by like a thousand times and and just mm. you know it's like bubblegum pink and it's like all these crazy indigenous grapes from georgia oh, wow. um and she you know nobody really people blend grapes there but it's like not as common so it's to blend 35 is like pretty radical 
Um, cool. Yeah. So, I mean, that's one, another one. I mean, let's go, go to France. Um, there's one guy that I work with. His name is Eric Kahn. And um, I went to visit him. I basically found him on the internet. Also, this is like a lot of traveling around in, in Europe in a car is just like finding the next person that you're going to visit on the internet and calling them and hope they say yes. You know? And um, I went there with my partner who speaks um, fluent French. Um, and my French is not, um, it's, which is very useful. Um, my French is like wine, yeah. you know, it's, you know, I can get by talking about wine and like making a couple of jokes here and there, but Eric is like, You're lucky you to have a good, yeah, it's good. French it's speaking partners. Um, <laughs> that was smart picking. I mean, you part. know, I got, I got lucky. <laughs> um, anyway, Eric, we drove up to the house and he was like this gruff kind of guy, maybe in his late twenties, early thirties, maybe mid thirties, who knows, um, on a tractor. And like, um, in, you know, he brought us into his house and it was just like caving in. Like the house is this, it's, it's, it was built in the 13th century. It's just like the ceiling is like ovular almost, you know, it's just like the house is old, you know, and we were, you know, he was telling us about his family, you know, they've been making wine there for, for generations. And he was the first, his father makes wine and he makes wine with his father, but also on his own. And so, you know, they're part of the like Alsace wine trail. So while we were in the tasting room and he was like, you're only allowed to taste my natural, like the Vin and you're not allowed to taste. I was like, I'm curious about the conventional wines. And he was like, no, 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 you're not allowed to taste those. You're only going to taste these. And there was like another couple that walked in, it's like Belgian or something. And they were there to taste the conventional wines. And so he had to do this like side by side, like tourist tasting of, and, they, and he was like, no, you won't like these natural wines that they're tasting. Don't worry. But we, you know, we drove away as we were driving away and I, we like looked at each other and we were like, wow, this guy's going to be a star, you know, like his wines were just so good. And like, he's a, you know, he's just totally nuts. And since, you know, now every time his wines arrive, they're like almost sold out by the time they basically get inbounded. You know, it's like, he's Eric Kamm. It's, um, K-A-M-M. And he makes like, he's like got all these like anarchy symbols. He's kind of like a. I think he doesn't like to leave his house, but he's also like, like a crust punk, basically, like kind of like in that, like he wishes he could like be an anarchist, but he like doesn't leave his house, you know. That's awesome. I mean, there are a lot, you know, there's so many different people. It's like many, many big personalities. And there's a, yeah, I mean, I could go on, but there's, I don't know, we've got a lot of, we've covered a lot of ground. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, no. Well, thank you. No, that's great. I want to end on a a high point. which th- that's why I was hoping your your tales of the producers would be, um, which sounds great. Um, thank you so much for your time and for you know talking about all this stuff. This has been yeah, great. It's such a pleasure. Really getting to, Thanks for having getting to know you and what you're doing. Um, if if you if people want to learn more or if you want people to get in touch with them, what what would you suggest? Um, you can always go, uh, my email is on the website, just roniselects.com, R-O-N-I, um, or our Instagram, which is the same, roni underscore selects or dash or something like that. You can always, I'm, you know, it's a small, a, a small company. So no matter what, you'll find a way to get in contact with me through one of those means. <laughs> Nobody else is, is looking at those messages. So <laughs> <laughs> great. Yeah. Excellent. Thank you so much. Cool. Again. Well, thank you. Uh, Of course, my pleasure, truly. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this interview with Roni Ganache of Roni Selects. Thank you so much for listening. I definitely don't take your time and attention for granted. 
Unlike many other podcasts, we don't ask for donations. Uh, but if you value this podcast and want to support it, the easiest and most yummy way to do that is to buy a bottle of Centralis wine. Centralis is my winery, and I started it to provide delicious organically grown wine and to promote organic regenerative values. One of the ways Centralis promotes those values is by sponsoring this podcast. So if you buy Centralis wines, you get delicious wine and support this podcast. You can buy Centralis wines at centraliswine.com. That's C-E-N-T-R-A-L-A-S wine.com. Thank you.